Let's just pray together, shall we, before we start? Father, we thank you that we can come into this place again on another Lord's Day, on another Sunday, and we're able to lift your praises, to think about all that you have done for us through your son Jesus as he came as that ransom. He came as that, that man who would bear the sins of the world, our sin and our shame. And now as we come to the text, and as we come to the, the moment in this journey where your son had this trial as he was mocked and scorned, we pray that this morning that we just will see Jesus in all his perfection and all of his majesty and that we will fall greater and, and more deeply in love with him. So help us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus left Gethsemane with Judas. Jesus left Gethsemane with the betrayer. Bound, under arrest, for crimes that he did not commit. In the middle of that night, or that Friday night, or that early Friday morning, with the cross approaching, Jesus was led to Annas. He was led to Annas. Uh, and this was the marker of the first stage in Jesus' sixth stage trial. Okay? So, Annas was his first stage in six stages in his trial. So this is where we begin this morning with Annas. John chapter 18, verse 13. John 18. We're going to use the Gospels this morning. We're going to be turning from one to the other to see these six stages. So please make a marker or keep your, your hands in those pages because we'll be moving back to John later on. But this morning I want it to be this way. That we will move from Gospel to Gospel to see this uh, picture in its entirety. John 18 and, th- and 13. Jesus is brought to Annas. And it says this. First, they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. In John 18.13, we are told that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. What does that mean? Well, Annas himself had actually received a permanent title of high priest. And the reason that was is because he remained one of the nation's most influential political and social individuals. So that's why he was brought to Annas first. And in the house of Annas, Jesus faced accusations that he 
had committed a crime. Now this, is, of course, is impossible, isn't it? First and foremost, that accusation that he would have committed a crime and been unlawful is impossible. We know that because he was sinless. He was perfect in every way. And after enduring the insults of Annas and being struck by an officer, as you read in verse 22, he was then sent bound again to Caiaphas. And here we reach stage two. Stage two. And we turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 57 to 68. We won't read all of these verses, but as, we, as I speak, please have your eyes on the page as we go through this. When Jesus reaches Caiaphas, he also reaches the Sanhedrin. He also reaches the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the highest court of justice and the supreme council in ancient Jerusalem. They were the highest authority in Jerusalem. And Jesus reaches Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, those high priests and teachers and, uh, and elders. And here they run a mock trial. They run a mock trial. But the interesting thing is, it is the middle of the night. It's the middle of the night. And they run this mock trial in the darkness of night. Sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. We would know that Biblically, as the fourth watch of the night. And it was illegal. What they were doing in these moments with Jesus was illegal. They could not do this. It was against the Jewish law to do such a thing. This should have been done when the sun was up, not when the sun was down. Well, what do we know of this trial from these verses here? Well, look at verse 59. That council members, uh, that the council members themselves were seeking false ten- testimony against Jesus. In verse 59, it says that, doesn't it? Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They were not looking for facts. This is the, the highest authority in Jerusalem, yet they are not looking for facts. But anything that would result in Jesus being put to death. Secondly, there was no lack of volunteers to bear witness or false witness against Jesus. And this is stunning, isn't it? In verse 60. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. There wasn't a struggle. To find those who are willing to bear a false and untrue testimony against Jesus in that moment. However, it was impossible for the Sanhedrin to confer. Just think about this for a moment. 
It was impossible for the Sanhedrin to confer with the witnesses to tell them what they needed them to say in order to send Jesus to the cross. It was impossible. Unsurprisingly, there seemed to be no, no one with any evidence at all, or at least evidence that matched one another. So one would have come and, and bore false witness against Jesus, and another would have come and stood before the council, <clears throat> and they would have bore false witness against Jesus, but there would have been uh, no correlation between the stories. No real evidence that this man was due to be put to death. There was no standing for that judgment. Thirdly, we see two witnesses came forward. We see that in those verses. And told the council what they had heard from Jesus. The problem was that their personal regurgitation of Jesus' own words were not entirely right. You can read it there in verse 61. They said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now that is not all necessarily untrue because actually Jesus in, Matthew, in Mark sorry, 14 and 58, he said this, I will destroy the temple that was made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. That's the full uh, quotation of Christ. And of course, we know Jesus wasn't talking about the Jewish temple but about his body as the temple foretelling what is about to happen over the course of the next three days. But they took it as a a physical rather than a a spiritual and that he would destroy the building and the, the blocks and the mortar of that temple which they found and they believed as so sacred. And so Caiaphas, having heard this, stood up. In verse 63. And we see. Or verse 62. He stood up. And he says. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Even as Caiaphas stood up. It demonstrated at this moment. He was obviously sitting. And then he stood. Because what was about to be said by him. Was going to be so important. And that everyone may take note. And he questioned Jesus about the testimony of the two witnesses. But Jesus suffered in silence. He made no response. And after Caiaphas once again questioned Jesus about his identity. And whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. Yet Jesus, well, it tells us in verse 64. Let's read it together. Jesus said to him, you have said so you have said so Jesus tells him he is who he says he is then the high priest having torn his robes in anger and disgust concludes with a judgment of blasphemy in verse 65 then the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy what further witnesses do we need You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? Then they answered, 
He deserves death. And they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And all of this, in these moments, as they run this mock trial in the darkness of night, illegally, unlawfully, they run this trial. And they come to this judgment, this conclusion that this man who stood before them, the one they have been seeking, is worthy of death. That he is a blasphemer. And that this quotation from these two witnesses was enough, although false, to put Jesus to death. To send him to the cross. Let's just take a breather from that story for a moment, shall we? Put that to the back of your mind for a second. Because woven in this storyline are two other stories, other accounts that are happening Right at these moments as Jesus is being accused and condemned in the temple. And the first one is this, that Peter uh, was about to deny or was denying potentially Jesus in these very moments. We don't have time to look at it in detail this morning, but this is where it would fit into the Passion Week narrative. Peter has followed Christ at a distance so not to be noticed. But he has somehow, we don't know how, he has made it into the courtyard and now is sitting with the guard, almost outside of the room where Jesus is, uh, where this, as we've just seen, is all happening in the middle of the night. He's sitting just outside. And it's an interesting phrase that is used here in verse 58. We see that he waited to see the end. He waited to see the end. He wanted to see what was to come of his friend and Lord, Jesus. But in those moments, he was spotted and recognized as a follower of Jesus. And when questioned, he denies the Lord three independent times. And immediately after that, the rooster crowed and Peter knows what he has done and leaves weeping bitterly. Well, the other story that's happening at this point, at this moment, is of course the death of Judas, the betrayer. Having seen the outcome of the Sanhedrin and that Jesus is now condemned to the cross and going to be crucified in the next number of hours, he goes back to the temple to the chief priests and with those 30 pieces of silver which he gained, that he wanted and he was greedy for, he now throws them back into the temple and, and, and tries to revoke and reverse all that he has done in the past, all that he has done in sending Jesus to be accused and now sending him essentially to the cross. And he feels remorse. And I think that's as far as we can go, as far as how he felt. He felt remorse. And he goes out and hangs himself unsuccessfully. Acts 1 and 18 tells us that uh, he fell headlong. Down to the ground below, disemboweling himself. And that was the end of Judas. But going back 
to the dominating storyline that we see here, this mock trial, having happened in the dark of night, as we've already said, was illegitimate. It was unlawful. You see, there's another point here we must make as we go back and understand first century uh, court law and, and the role of the Jewish court and the role of the Roman court is this, that actually the Jewish courts did not have the power to sentence anybody to death. They did not have the power to do that. That was not up to them. That was purely the, the decision of the Roman Empire and its authorities and its court. And this helps us to see this great picture as we go through these six stages this morning. So the question that we must ask ourselves is how are they going to legitimize and legalize what they did illegally in the middle of the night? Because what they did in the, in the middle of the night, that mock trial, could not have been brought to the Roman Empire because they would have asked the questions. When did you reach this verdict? When did you run this trial? When? And all these kind of questions would come about. And if they knew that they had not done it in the day when the sun was in the sky, then it would have been thrown out. Well, here we reach stage three. Caiaphas again and the chief priests. Round two. Matthew 27, one and two. Sometimes you just skip over these verses and you wonder, what are these two about? Maybe you don't even, or never have read these before. But here, here we have a very interesting moment. And just remember this. I I had to wake myself up to this every time I read every stage. I'm thinking, Jesus is being dragged along to every stage of this. He was the subject of the matter. He was bound, beaten, spat on and slapped as he went along. And here at verse, uh, verse 1 and 2 of 27, we reach stage 3. It says this, when morning came, when morning came, when the sun rose, very early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. They ran another trial. Having done it as a mock-up in the middle of the night, now they run, I would assume, a smaller, shorter trial to legalize all that they had already decided in the middle of the night. Probably around six o'clock in the morning, they, they, they met Caiaphas and all of the elders and the witnesses for this rerun, this rerun of a trial. And having done this, they bound Jesus again and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor, in verse 2. And now it's in the hands of Pilate, the governor. It has entered the Gentile Roman world and its powers. And so we reach stage four of Jesus' trial with Pilate. And now turn back to John 18, because this is where we see this stage, stage four. John 18, 28 and 32.
the Gentile court, like the Jewish court, was, an open, was, was open sorry, from sunrise to sunset. So early in the morning, Caiaphas and the elders head to the governor's, Pilate's, headquarters. That's what it tells us there in these verses. That's what they did. That court would get busy during the day, and it would get busier and busier and busier. So, as it tells us, they arrive early in the morning, verse 28. They arrive early in the morning, as to pass this judgment which they had already come to just a few hours before in the middle of the night. But here's an interesting thing. They did not enter the courts. Verse 28 tells us that. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. They did not want to enter a Gentile habitat. And if they did, they would become defiled by it. You see, it was the week of the festival, as we know. And if made unclean, seven days would need to pass in order for them to be clean again. So Pilate went out to them. Isn't it interesting it says that there? 29. So Pilate went outside to them. And he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? What he's saying is this. What has he done? What has he done? Turn to Luke 23 and chapter 2. Luke 23 and chapter 2 gives us the full extent of their accusations against Jesus, I believe. Luke 23 and 2. Luke chapter 23 and verse 2. Their accusations were as follows. Just follow the text. This is all from the text. He is misleading the nation. Number one. It's funny how their accusations have grown and, and changed and been added to over the last hours. Secondly, he forbids the worship of Caesar. Thirdly, he says he is the Christ, a king. And in verse 5, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And Pilate's response is this, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. Pilate was uh, a judge for a reason. He was a judge for a reason. He had been a judge for over a decade and he he knew that this man, Jesus, was innocent. But he realizes that this Jesus was not under his jurisdiction. And this is a very important part as we see this here. He is not under his jurisdiction, verses 6 and verse 7. And at this moment, we reach our fifth stage as Jesus now is brought to Herod in Luke 23, 8 to 16. Those, those next verses. And Herod just happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. 
and was glad that he got to meet Jesus. This is quite a turn, isn't it? I saw Herod was sort of looking forward to seeing this Jesus. And the reason that he was looking forward to seeing Jesus is written for us here in verse 8. He tells us that he long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he had hoped to see some sign done by him. He wanted to see a miracle. He didn't want to send him to the cross at that moment. What he desired above all things was that this Jesus who he had heard about and now he was in Jerusalem and knowing Jesus would be there, he actually just wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. Herod questioned Jesus at length, but Jesus gave no answer. All the while, the chief priests and the scribes took the, and passionately abused and accused Jesus. Herod and his soldiers treated him as though he was a worthless person, and they mocked him. They did this by arraying him, as it says there, in splendid clothing. Dressing and mocking him as a king he claimed to be. And in those clothes, in that splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Luke, with an extra detail which he regularly gives, says that that day was the day that Pilate and Herod became friends. Isn't that a funny thing to say right in the middle of this uh, one of the ugliest and immoral situations that we see in the New Testament yet in that moment Pilate and Herod became friends after years of having enmity between each other they became friends over this and so we reach the final stage stage six Stage six. And we go back to Pilate in Matthew 27, 15 to 31. And this is where we really, we really finish this morning. Matthew 27, 15 to 31. And I would encourage you to go home and read these accounts for yourselves, word for word, in detail, and build that picture in your mind. It was a custom that the governor would release one prisoner to the people during the feast. That was the custom. An unusual one, but that was it. Pilate, having this responsibility as his own, and knowing that Jesus could be accused of nothing, Interestingly, decides that he would choose the worst prisoner and criminal in order to, to, to try and divert the cries of the crowd from Jesus. This would be his best opportunity to try and change the people's mind. He knew that the people had delivered up Jesus out of envy, it tells us in verse 18. They were envious and therefore, that is the reason that they wanted Jesus dead. They resented him. They knew that they could not get out of Jesus what they needed. Go back to the first week. No greater king as he entered Jerusalem. Their cry has changed because they now know that 
that there was no way they were going to get what they wanted out of this Christ. But Pilate, he had a good wife. He had a good wife. That's an important thing for a man to have, a good wife. Because in verse 19, it would seem that she slept on after Pilate rose early in the morning to go to the mock trial. And her dream had brought about suffering to her. We do not know details about the dream or how she suffered. But what we do know is that there was an urgency about getting a message to Pilate before he made any decision, decisions on Jesus. You see, dreams were taken seriously back then. And it shows in that moment that she even brought a momentary pause to the proceedings. That would have been a striking thing in those days to stop the proceedings of this court. But yet this dream was such and her urgency was so that they had to stop and Pilate was told about it. The crowd was roaring and shouting. However, we must see this crowd's decision as being aided and influenced. What do I mean? Well, verse 20. Look at verse 20. And we should not be surprised when we read this about what is happening. Because it says this. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Here they are yet again Those who were doing the mock trial in the middle of the night, those who were pursuing Jesus for many days, trying to find a way to accuse him and send him to death, they now stand in the middle of this great multitude and crowd, persuading them. Somehow, whether their cries were were being echoed through that crowd, or whether they were shouting in the ears of them who they stood next to, trying to persuade the multitude that they should free Barabbas rather than Jesus and send Jesus to his death. Well, we know well that the decision of the crowd was to release Barabbas. Then Pilate gives them one more opportunity to let this innocent man go by asking this. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Verse 22. And four words come out of the mouths of the crowd. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. In this very important, uh, or this very moment, the people of Israel exchanged the Messiah for a murderer. They exchanged the Messiah for a murderer. Pilate washes his hands of Jesus' blood, meaning that he takes no responsibility for what is about to happen. And in response to this, his statement, the people respond with what I still think, every time I read them, are some of the most disturbing words in the New Testament. And here they are from the crowd. In these, in these few verses here, they say this. His blood Be on us and on our children. His blood. Now this was not talking about the new covenant in the blood. That blood which is for the forgiveness of sins. No, 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 no. What they were saying at this moment was this. They are talking about taking his murder and wearing it as their own. We take responsibility for 
for his death. This is on us. And just here I want to show, you, show us what we have just seen. just want to pause for this one moment and just see what we have just seen in the entirety of what we've looked at in the last 30 minutes. And this is why my title this morning of this sermon was called No Greater Perfection. This is why the word perfection was in it. Because in view of this, uh, this morning we see the unjust, the unrighteous, the unlawful, prideful, selfish nature of four characters. Annas, Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate. The enormity of their sin sits as the backdrop. Well, the backdrop to what? Well, here it is this morning. I think this is what the gospel writers are trying to tell us here this morning. As we read these these verses and as we just follow the narrative like we have done this morning, this is what I think we see is this. Is that the backdrop of sin of these four characters and the chief priests and the elders also, we see standing right in the front of all of this in all majesty and glory is Jesus' perfection. His perfection. His purity. His majesty. His humility and glory and beauty. Their sinfulness and wickedness only magnified Christ's sinlessness and perfection. That is what we see. They didn't see that, but that is what we see now. But as I close, I want us to see what happened just next. And I will simply identify the offenses that Jesus bore in these verses, verses 26 through to 31 of Matthew 27. And here they are. This is what Jesus bore for us and his obedience to his Father. Verse 26. He was scourged. What does that mean? Well, a whip with multiple strands. Multiple strands known to be embedded with metal and bone. This was then ripped across his naked body. A 600 strong battalion arrived and stripped him and put on a scarlet robe. Verse 27. A twisted crown of thorns laid on his head. Thorns the size and as sharp as needles. A reed was put in his hand. He was mocked as a king by the battalion, by those potential 600 men who stood there. They knelt before him and they said, Hail! King of the Jews. They spit on him. Taking the reed from his hand. Probably making him fall on the ground. They strike the crown of thorns into his skull. Taking off the scarlet robe. They dressed him in his own clothes. And they led him away to be crucified. This Friday, this Friday, coming, we meet together on, on Good Friday for a service 
as we give thanks for all that Christ has done for us through his work of salvation. And this morning, and maybe all previous Easter sermons in this series have shown us what the gospel writers are showing us here, that in Jesus there was no fault, just perfection. But maybe from these last few verses, showing the pain and the mocking he bore through his trial, and thinking back to the garden that we looked at last Sunday morning, we could have called this section, this last section, verse 26 through 31, we could have called it this, no greater obedience. No greater obedience. Obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we, we wonder yeah, and we stand in awe of all that Jesus was put through and went through for us. And we are, we're astounded by his obedience to you, his Father. We thank you that this was all taking place because of that obedience to you, but not only that, it's because you loved us so much that you gave us your one and only Son, that whoever may believe in him may have life. They wouldn't perish, but they would know you from this day on and have eternity with you. We thank you for all that you have done in sending your Son. Bless us as we, as we sing praises to you now. You are worthy of our praise. And as we sit round the table and remember again through these emblems of bread and wine that we may be thankful people because of all that he has done for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure.